0: In his book, Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home, Richard Foster describes many types of prayer, uh, one of which is the prayer of the forsaken. I first read this book in my 20s, and Foster's chapter on the, the prayer of the forsaken starts out by saying that there's no more heartfelt prayer than the cry of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it goes on to say that in your own way, you will pray this prayer of the forsaken in that times of seeming desertion, absence, or abandonment appear universal among those who have walked a path of faith and that we too will know what it means to feel forsaken by God. Centuries ago, St. John of the Cross described this as a dark night of the soul a season of undefined length when God feels hidden from us, when our prayers bounce off the sky with an almost tin-like sound, when our knuckles are bruised from knocking on the door of heaven. Though it feels like God removing their presence, Foster says that it is rather God removing our awareness of God's presence, but regardless, it feels the same. And when I read about it, I simply could not imagine it. I couldn't imagine God not feeling accessible to me. And I know now how naive and even hurtful that may sound. But in the moments of my life up to that point where i had experienced grief and pain, I had also experienced feeling nearer to God. The idea of just suddenly not sensing God's presence was so unfathomable to me. I connect very easily to the stories of others. A math nerd friend of mine once calculated that if I'm ever alone in a cab for more than 25 minutes, there's an 80% chance of the cab driver crying. The people I would talk to and care about, I would hold them. I would hold them in my prayers at night and I would hand them to God and I would ask God to hold them and to hold me. And I would feel this warm, mystical, electric blanket (laughs) drape over me. It was how I sensed the presence of God. It was so normal to me that It was surprising when I realized that not everyone experiences the presence of God like that. We all experience God's presence differently. Some people experience it like that, not everyone. A confused friend once asked me if I ever mistook a broken radiator for God. (laughs) But that was the deal we had, me and God. God's presence was fundamental to my compassion ecosystem. God held me so I could hold others. Thus, I could not imagine a dark night of the soul. But I wouldn't have to wait long (laughs) to experience it. I stumbled into it just a few years later. It was at a time when I was holding several people in my heart while simultaneously holding my own grief. And I would curl up at night and pray, crying out for God and asking God to hold those people and to hold me. But I could not feel God. There was no warm blanket. There was no pool of divine peace that i felt my prayers weighed into i i was still holding people's pain and i couldn't hand it to god to carry with me god why aren't you showing up to carry these that's our deal where are you and i was hurt i felt abandoned by the one who promised to never leave or forsake me. And my prayers echoed inside me. And whether God had removed themself or my ability to sense them did not matter to me. And it felt deeply lonely. The book of Ruth is only four chapters long and it's tempting to think that it's just in the Bible because Ruth is a part of the family tree of David and Jesus and is therefore supposed to be read like a romance novel, where the most important thing is that two people fall in love and have a baby. If it were a Hallmark movie, Ruth would leave the big city to care for her former mother-in-law, Naomi, in the small town that her late husband grew up in, and she would learn to love again when she meets his wealthy cousin, Boaz. The book of Ruth has romance and drama and a late-night rendezvous that Hallmark would definitely edit out. And it has a a bold declaration at the city gate, which would be an airport gate in the Hallmark film. And we'd even get that one-year-later moment at the end where Naomi is holding her grandson, Obed. But the story of Ruth is also this profoundly rich and complex text that goes beyond a Hallmark plot. The book opens with Naomi's dark night of the soul. Yes, Ruth and Orpah, her daughter-in-laws, are also grieving the loss of their husbands, Naomi's sons, but Naomi's experience is described more deeply. Her family has been driven out of their homeland by famine years earlier, And in this moment of devastating loss, losing her husband and both of her sons, she is still living in a foreign land, away from her people and her family. As a woman and widow in a foreign land, she is at the bottom of the social order. She literally has nothing. No power. As a woman, no property. No way to take care of herself. No grandchildren. Her family line is completely cut off. Nothing is hers. Nothing. And in verse 20, Naomi will say to not call her Naomi anymore. Because Naomi means pleasant in Hebrew. Instead, she says to call her by the Hebrew word for bitter, Mara. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The only thing that Naomi has is this promise from her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates me from you. This promise, Ruth's leaving from Moab to return to Naomi's home, means that Ruth is now taking the weight of being in a foreign land off of Naomi's shoulders and putting it upon her own. Ruth places herself lower than Naomi in the social order. She takes her place. The book of Ruth is, at its core, a love story, but a different kind of love. It is a Hesed story. Hesed, the Hebrew word for loving kindness. Naomi names Ruth as continuously expressing Hesed to her. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your Hesed is better than the first. And it is Ruth's loving kindness to Naomi that draws Boaz's attention. And it is Boaz's loving kindness that urges him to take responsibility for Ruth and Naomi. Hesed is all over this book. And Hesed is at the core of who God is. First Chronicles 16.34, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for they are good, for their Hesed endures forever. Micah 6.8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love Hesed and to walk humbly with your God? In Exodus 34.6, God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in Hesed and faithfulness, Keeping Hesed for a thousand generations. The Bible is full of declarations of God's Hesed, God's loving, merciful kindness. And we see this Hesed in action in Ruth's promise to Naomi. And the language that Ruth is using would be recognized in that time as covenant language, which is legally binding. And it's rare to see women uh, giving covenant language to other women because they have no property. But this is a language that God speaks with Israel. God binds themselves to Israel throughout the Hebrew Bible, and Jesus will call himself the New Covenant. And like God's covenant to Abraham and Noah and David, and through Jesus, Ruth's covenant to Naomi is also entirely unconditional. So while God does not directly intervene in the book of Ruth, there is no manna from heaven. There's no sea that is parted. No one is raised from the dead. We see God illuminated through the character of Ruth. God is faithful through Ruth. God lays down power through Ruth. God identifies with the oppressed, is near to the brokenhearted, and offers unconditional love through Ruth. And through Ruth's story, we know that where we go, God will go. Where we stay, God will stay. And not even death will separate us from the love of God. I found a seat in the back row of a prayer service. I knew my friend was at the front and I texted her that I'd meet her at, at the end of the service. I couldn't be in the front. My soul's night remained dark and I had just received word that my aunt had passed away and the typical distance that I feel from my family on the West Coast felt even farther. Everyone in front of me was standing and singing, and the room was dark so that people could see lyrics that were projected at the front of the sanctuary. And the darkness was also good for hiding. No one could see me in the back or see my tears, and no one could hear the prayer on repeat inside of me. God, wrap your arms around me. Just wrap your arms around me. And my prayer was interrupted, when I felt two arms wrap around me and hold me in a long hug. My friend would tell me later that in the middle of singing, she just felt this pull to go find me because she just needed to hug me. Which is like, whoa, mystical God moment. Everything's fixed, right? Sadly. That's not how I felt. Two things were true. I was grateful for my friend, and I was also a little annoyed that God sent someone else when I was asking for them. I was asking to experience God in a specific way, the way that I recognized. And many authors write about the purpose of the dark night of the soul, and that it releases us from our own expectations of God and how God shows up. And as long as I defined God's presence solely as a warm, mystical blanket, I would miss God's presence in other places, like the people around me. I wanted to keep answering the needs of my community without ever needing my community. I wanted to only be vulnerable with God, but here's the thing, God works through relationships, many relationships. As a triune God, God Himself is many relationships. The journey I started during my dark night of the soul has led me to realize that parts of my faith are a group project, which I find to be deep and profound and beautiful and sometimes still completely annoying. And when I say group project, I really mean group project. It's not just one person. Vince isn't enough God isn't perfect, and Rebecca isn't enough God. She'll mess up, and I'm not close to being enough God, even when I wish I could be. You cannot fit the ocean in this bucket. And maybe you've had to say goodbye to the person who you most readily identified as showing you God's love, and I'm sorry. It is not enough. The person next to you is great. They are also not enough God, and they don't have to be because they're not God. Each of us does not have to be enough because we hold the reflection of God together, relationally and collaboratively. Like prisms in the sun, each shining in different moments, depending on the lights movement the light cannot be confined to one prism's reflection. Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi's grandson, Obed, all reflect God's Hesed to Naomi and to each other in different moments and in different ways. The book of Ruth begins with the death of Naomi's sons and her prayer of the forsaken, but it ends with a new picture of Naomi, no longer Mara, as the women gathered to praise God for her, saying he will renew, I'm sorry, gather to praise God for her grandson, saying he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him, and the women living there said, Naomi has a son. Who has shown you glimpses of God? Whose arms has God used to hold you? Whose words have spoken life to you? Was it someone surprising? Whose eyes have reflected God's deep loving kindness to you? Do they know it? Last week, as we talked about the Back Bay trip that we sent our church team on, the prayer in my heart was that we would be a community of Ruth's, that others may glimpse God in our showing up and in our love and in our service. And today, my prayer is that we are also a community of Naomi's, willing to be vulnerable enough to pray the prayer of the forsaken. Naming our pain and not polishing or hiding it or being afraid of sounding too angry with God. Able to text one another, I'm struggling. Allowing others to be present in our needs and being open to seeing God present here in others.